0: This episode of Breaking Brave is brought to you by Soul Snacks. Soul Snacks are single ingredient, eco conscious dog and cat treats sourced directly from farms in Ontario and wrapped in fully compostable packaging. Treating your pets never felt so good. Use coupon code Breaking Brave for 15% off on soulsnacks.ca. That's soulsnacks.ca. This episode is also brought to you by Crank Coffee, the newest member of the Neal Brothers family. Crank Coffee is a new Canadian whole bean coffee brand that is certified organic and fair trade, founded by the Neal Brothers, Peter and Chris. This brand was influenced by cycling, coffee lovers, and experts. Check it out at the Neal Brothers online shop and use our coupon code BRAVE for 20% off your first Crank Coffee purchase. Enjoy. Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. Ron Tite is a friend, a speaker, an author, and the founder and chief creative officer at his marketing agency, Church & State. He has been an award-winning advertising writer and creative director for some of the world's most respected brands. He's also one of the funniest, smartest, and kindest humans that I know. During our conversation today, Ron and I discussed the notion of trend-setting brands versus trend-chasing brands. We also talk about his book, Think, Do, Say, and his unique definition of bravery. Please welcome the absolutely incredible Mr. Ron Tite. I've got a little fan envy going on here, I gotta tell you, because my guest today is the Ron Tite. Welcome to Breaking Brave, Ron.
1: Nice to be here. That's my radio voice. We're on radio. All the hits here on Barefoot FM.
0: I love it. Ron, I probably have never told you this story, but a billion zillion years ago, I met you... When I had my own agency called SquarePeg, and I was taking a brief from Sharp Blackmore, and the guy said to me, oh, we've got the greatest writer lined up within the agency to work with you. He's actually kind of a stand-up comedian at night, but he's a writer during the day. His name is Ron Tite. And at some point during the process of working through this client brief with you guys, because I had a promotions agency and you were strictly advertising, we actually met... At Ten
1: Alcorn, right? It would have been at Ten Alcorn. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In that gorgeous Coolio office that you guys had
1: there. That was an amazing office. I I love that office. And like no office has ever, and I love our office right now, but no office have has ever come close to that office. And when I eventually went because I'd left Sharp Blackmore and then back when it was when it became Havas and stuff, I was there and my office Opened up into the courtyard. Oh, like me and Stacy, my partner Stacy Hill, were in that office. It opened up into a courtyard. It was
0: incredible. Ugh. Well, that is exactly where we first met. Now,
1: yeah, that was nine, no, early 2000s, yeah. right.
0: Oh, easy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I would like to hear. You have a marketing agency called Church and State, but we have, I'm proud to say, a global audience. So, I would oh. like t- you to tell the world what you do. What do you do, Ron? Well, hello, world.
1: <laughs> um, we, uh, we are, as you can probably tell by the name, um, although we do get one or two calls every now and then that from, you, you from the deep south. They're like, y'all, a spiritual organization. <laughs> I'm like, no, we're not. <laughs> um, but Church and State is really came out of, as you know, I was ECD at Havas. And I just saw that the world was changing. The advertising world was, marketing was changing. Advertising agencies were changing. The content, ecos, everything, blah, blah, blah. And I thought that, that, that it was really weird that the advertising and content editorial, be it television, print, whatever, they were completely dependent on one another, like completely dependent on one another. One subsidized the other. And, Nobody put them together. It was two completely different ecosystems, different talent, different organizations, different approaches, everything. And as the kind of, you know, cost of production came down and kind of global instantaneous distribution came in, it this, this kind of rise of niche, niche content and the ability to, to consume it and create it really increased. And it put everybody on guard. It put the old school content companies, be it broadcasters and newspapers. It put the old school brand marketers who were losing eyeballs to kind of niche content. It put agencies on guard who only knew one process and all of that. So I just left to start my own and thought that it was that unification of church and state, you know, of content and advertising. And so that's our approach. So we do everything from, you know, we have a stake in a production company that one uh, I was nominated for Canadian Screen Award for an amazing documentary film, so that we do everything from that, all the way through to we're the digital agency for Walmart, we're a digital agency for Google. Um, we uh, are the digital agency for Centennial College um, and a whole bunch of other kind of clients uh, in there. So we just treat, we just help brands win the battle for time, independent of platform, independent of media, independent of all that stuff.
0: And how big are you now, um, Ron? How many people do you have with you?
1: 6,000 people. Okay. Give or take 6,000. <laughs> we're, I think we're 26 people now. Excellent. I think it's something like
0: that. Excellent. Your work is brilliant. Your work is- Well, thank you. Absolutely it's really brilliant. It's really
1: fun. The team is incredible. Like, it's just, I, you know, um, uh, one of the joys of the pandemic was- because as you know, I you know I wasn't there a heck of a lot the pandemic. I was on the road a lot, mm-hmm. and one of the joys of the pandemic, as travel ceased, was kind of really dialing back in mm-hmm. and really working closely with our with our team, who are just incredible human beings.
0: D- didn't you? I I read somewhere, maybe it was LinkedIn, that your agency won best place to be to work just like very very recently
1: it was a it was a certification of, uh, or like a pass i think of like great places to work and it was you know for an, for an industry that prides itself on ad awards and i'm not saying that those are irrelevant or that we don't care about those and i think but the journey of starting the agency during those for a few years like it wasn't a great culture like it wasn't it wasn't a great place to work i'll admit that it wasn't a great place to work and i think that was part of the natural you know, chaos of starting an agency and wanting to do the right thing and wanting to be innovative. And like just all those things we all dream about that when we start our own business of what it's going to be like. Mm-hmm. And there's like 5,000 of them. And I just pulled the agency in too many different directions and had kind of the, a lot of the wrong people in place. Not that there weren't great people they were amazing people, but just in the wrong place, doing the wrong things. And to win that really meant a lot that we, um, we finally are getting it right.
0: Excellent. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. And what made it so that you look back now on the early days of the agency? First of all, kudos to you for having the bravery to step out and say, look, I see the world going in another direction, and I think this is what we should be doing instead of what the other agencies are doing, maybe putting their head in the sand. But what was it about the early years? As you say, maybe it wasn't a great place to work. Maybe it's very brave of you to open up like that. So I appreciate it in terms of wrong people, wrong seats, wrong bus. I'm not sure, but but I guess what's the learning there when you were just first kind of nailing up your shingle?
1: Well, I think the first part was uh, I remember – showing people back when we we were all on Dropbox you know like that was mm-hmm. our server was Dropbox and I showed the team and I said here's the it was then it was we started called the tight group right. at first and I said so here's the folder right here's the tight group folder everybody has access to all these clients what you don't see is that the tight group is just a folder on my Dropbox I got 20 other folders and it was the one folder that blew up it was the one folder of 20 bets of things that I was looking at to go, like, I don't know, like we're just gonna have a bunch of stuff here and see what happens. And, uh, you know, I, uh, it was always created with this goal in mind of I'm going to speak and I wanna do things differently. I wanna lab, I wanna apply some of my speaking theory into clients and I wanna help clients and still be involved. But it was really this dual world of speaking and agency. Mm. And so I just gave myself six months, like, yeah, to see if there's anything there, I'll create a Dropbox folder and see if anything sticks. And if not, no big deal. I'll just speak. It's all good. Mm-hmm. And so right out of the gate, it's not like I was completely committed to it. It was just one concept carve. Like let's see if this can happen. So that was the first stage. The second stage was was that I was, should have I was. A creative guy and all creative people. I think as you sit in a boardroom and question a client's business and try and give them advice on what they should do, think you have a better handle on the total business than you actually do. Mm. You have vision, you know, a view of such a tiny, tiny, tiny part of their day. And, um, and, but you think, you know, way more than you do. So I had no business in running a business and being an operator and, and being a CEO. Um, now, obviously, I have the insight that i if I started it all over, I'd be very, very different. Um, the other thing was I for years had like, we all say it, man, if I got my own thing, you know what I would do? Mm. I would do this. I would do this. I would do this. Marilyn, do you know that at one point i had I literally paid somebody to come in to be an artist in residence? What kind of bullshit is that? Like we had no business doing that kind of thing. In that we did barely had a business, and here I was paying an artist in residence to come. I didn't even know what that meant, but I was just doing these weird, wacky things and see what stuck. And you know, and it was I wasn't disciplined enough, I wasn't focused enough. I had two competing kind of businesses, or not competing, but the speaking and the and the agency. And I remember the moment when I decided, like, okay, this is. There were two. There two, were two moments. The first moment was we started to pick up some stuff and I won a big client. And I won a big client and I said to myself, well, that whole, we'll see what happens in six months. Like if you're signing up for this, you're signing, you do not, you cannot walk away from this client because you don't want to do it anymore. So are you in or are you not in? Right. So I was like, okay, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. I'm going to build this as a as a business. Okay, great. So we did that. And um, at that point, the agency was being funded by my speaking. Mm. So I'd, I had, I hired a couple of people, especially we hired, we won this new account. I then go out. I hire more people. Um, and so this speaking was funding the business. I then got married. I bought a house, like, you know, all these things. And then we hit August. And as you know, there was very little speaking in kind of June, July time, July, and August. So we hit this period. I had gone through all this stuff, hired all these people, New house to tip up. Accountant comes and says, "You know, payroll's on Thursday." I go, "Yep." She's like, "There's nothing in the account. What, how are you going to pay these people?" I'm like, "What are you talking about? There's nothing in the account. We just build a hundred thousand dollars." Yeah. She's like, "Yeah, we're not. We just that was last week. We're not getting that for sixty days <laughs> at least." Yeah. And I looked at her and I said, "Oh, is is that cash flow?" <laughs> Like, is that what that means? Or lack thereof in
0: this particular case. lack thereof,
1: yeah. (laughs) The concept called cash flow. She's like, yeah. I said, oh, okay. So what do we do? And she's like, this is your business. You tell me. And I just remember thinking, fuck, I'm in over my head. I'm, man, this isn't, this isn't cool. It's just not cool. And I, it was the lowest point of my entrepreneurial life. When I had the first employee that ever agreed to work with me, um, Bridget Taller, who's an incredible human being, Bridget came to me and said, hey, I overheard your conversation with Lee and I have some money saved up. And if you wanna not pay me for a couple of months, like that's cool. And I said, no. And promise me you'll never say that to anybody ever again. You don't have equity in this place. You sign up as a job, you get a paycheck once every two weeks. That's the deal. Wow. And so I went to the client and I said, I need you to courier me that check. And worst thing to say to a new client, hey, we're financially irresponsible. (laughs) But I need you to courier me that check. And... um. J.F. Derry, who was the president of AB World Foods and Frickin' for who was the director of marketing, got that check in a courier and couriered it to us. Oh. And I made payroll. And my promise to them was, if you do it, I will I will immediately go out and find somebody to run the day-to-day to ensure that this never happens again. And I did. And um, But that without that check, I, w- I would have had to go to a five people and go, you're not getting paid for, I don't know how long. Like, what, horrible.
0: What a story! But it's how we learn, right? It's absolutely how we learn. And what an incredible human being to say, "Hey, Ron, you don't have to pay me for a couple of months." Wow.
1: Yeah, she and she was, you know, I remember her selling her on the vision, you know, yeah. and um, yeah, I, she is an, she's an incredible human being, and I. But I was almost angry with her for yeah. her being so yeah. wonderful.
0: Your work is your work is valued. You are valued. So therefore, I don't expect this from you. Wow. So we're on, on wanna talk about your speaking. So you were a speaker before you started the agency, obviously, and you're still doing that. And you're represented by Speaker Spotlight. Yeah. And you are incredible because you and I have been in the same room once together. Yeah. I see you doing that forever. Am I you're not 100%. walking away from that.
1: No. No, I'm not walking away from it from a variety of reasons. One is that I love the process of reading something, getting inspired by it or informed by it, having a perspective on it, packaging it, sharing it, making a difference for someone's life and, and in their job and in their career or for their organization. And at the same time, quite frankly, that whole package is delivered in a high margin. It's a high margin business. Um, you know, there are no expenses because expenses are all paid. It's a great business model. Yeah. Now it's not, so for a person who do like you, you look at the hour and you're like, yeah, that's a very profitable business, but it doesn't scale. So it's only profitable to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. So people are like, I can't believe you know you're able to charge that for an hour. I'm like, yeah, but the, I it's me and it's an hour. I can't I can't put that on assembly line. I can't crank it. You know, so I'm very very limited, in or we're all limited in terms of what we can earn. Um, but still, the balance of the kind of the intellectual pursuit, the crystallization, the performance aspect—be it funny or be it getting a moment of silence where they're really inspired by what you've said, or they're or they're contemplating what you've said—that's mm-hmm. really powerful yeah. to have. That nobody, no, very very few careers where you finished one portion of a job and you get you know a thousand people applauding your performance, yeah. or or not, <laughs> you know, you don't very few jobs get that immediate satisfaction of check the box, job well done.
0: Yeah. it It is incredible to see you work, and it's incredible to, to to watch the human connection that happens between you and your audience, and that by the time you've finished whatever you're talking about, and a little later we're gonna talk about your wonderful books, everyone feels like Ron Tite is their best friend. They, <laughs> they, they leave this place going, you talked to me straight up, you told it the way it was, God bless you for saying what's really going on in the world. You have an incredible effect on people. So
1: well, thanks, Marilyn. That's 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 very nice of you to say. Thanks. That I mean, I think that is um that comes out of the stand like I was a stand-up for 20 years. Mm -hmm. So the training there is really the 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 heart of stand-up is not writing great bits, although that's certainly really, really critical. But it's delivering those bits like it's the first time you've like it's like you're just thinking of them on stage. Yeah. And and that's been so helpful in, in the delivery of both comedic material but also serious material. In that, yeah, you you that's what you need to deliver. You need to deliver it like it's the first time you're saying it, but you can't say it for the first time. Because if you go out and deliver an hour of new material, it's crap. It's crap, it's gonna be crap. Nobody delivers an hour of brand new material. And if they, it's just, it's not going to be great. So you need to operationalize the delivery and customization of that content in a way that kind of checks all the boxes. And I used to, I used to feel, I don't know about how you feel about this, but I, I used to feel guilty about it sometimes where I'm like, oh, I can't reuse material and I can't, you know, like, I, and yeah. my good friend Michael Port was the one who really kind of crystallized it for me, where he said, okay, let's say you you have a line, right? Like you have an amazing line and you've just nailed the perfect way to deliver that line and that they appreciate it. And then you get paid and someone's paying you to deliver to their audience. How dare you not deliver that line in the best way that you know how to deliver? Yeah. How dare you? Yeah. How dare you not deliver the, You know the best performance? And- You know, part of the best performance is thinking of stuff on the spot and being, you know, inspired by it. But a lot of it is this is the way to say this. And I'm going to say it in the way that makes you think I just thought of it right now. But this is the best way to deliver it. Absolutely.
0: Can we jump to the bravery within brands? In other words, you're working for a bunch of really terrific brands with the agency that you've got. But then you also have the experience of speaking to large organizations, brands, et cetera. What do you think of this term, brand bravery? Are there some brands out there that are doing brave things in your estimation? Well, I think
1: there are two sides to it. One is I don't think – no, I don't think there are brave brands. I think there are brave people. Okay. Okay. I think there are people who who make brave decisions. I think there are people who who work with bravery in mind. The flip side of it is like, mm, is anybody is that brave? Like, is it brave, or is you know, you know, it's just with the, so there's so many important things going on in the world that really truly take bravery. But I can totally appreciate that. Like, well, then what other word do you use to describe it? Well, okay, it's bravery. And so, grave, bravery is a, is a, a sliding scale of importance mm-hmm. and within branding and marketing yes we can say that these are acts of bravery and acknowledge that they may not ladder up to somebody who's taking down an established government or Curing <laughs> cancer. I mean? something like yeah, that exactly um, so but yes within the the kind of the business world yeah there are people who make brave decisions because it's you know it's it's really easy to do the expected thing, to do the safe thing, mm-hmm. to to make it sound really, really perfect, to check all the boxes, to have a committee sign off on it. Mm. That's expected, and that's easy. It's easy, and I don't fault people for doing that. So I get it. You can only fight so many you know battles in a day, and sometimes you want to go home because t ball. You know, Timmy's got t ball at six. <laughs> I get that. Mm-hmm. Um, But every once in a while for you to step outside and go, maybe we're not going to do the expected thing. Maybe we're not going to do the easy thing. And maybe that there's a chance that this will tank. Yeah. And uh, and I'm willing to take that risk.
0: I had a client at McDonald's once um, who, there were a lot of clients at McDonald's who checked the boxes because they were the leader that many years ago they didn't have to really do much occasionally we had a shamrock shake so that shook things up but they didn't step out into the weird world of brave if you will but I did have one guy say to me one time if it wakes me up in the middle of the night and I'm afraid of it the creative then I know it's great so I'm like okay I'll I remember that it's like the next day the tv spot was going to go on air and he's like if I'm waking up the night before and I'm afraid I know it's going to be brilliant Mm-hmm. Trend-setting brands. Brands that are trend-setting versus brands that are trend-chasing. So I guess the leaders versus the copycatters, the followers. Who do you see out there that might be doing some cool stuff in the way of trend-setting?
1: Well, there are, there are different aspects to it. There are kind of big trends. There are big, big things like, you know, starting with, purpose and focusing on purpose Mm -hmm. and we're and there are a lot of organizations who are playing that game now right of like okay we're gonna yes we're going to investigate purpose we're going to have purpose Mm -hmm. when we have one of our financial clients we kind of lined up all the brand purpose statements of all the big FIs in the country and they all sound the same so it's like it's you know and it's like we're gonna you know we're gonna help people live their best life and you know and we're like great. That's, and and there's nothing wrong with that, but that sounds like everybody else. Right. So I think there are people who fundamentally have purpose at their core, but they really, really mean it. And so if you look at Patagonia, for example, which is getting a lot of play now because of what what Yves Schwinnard did in kind of stepping down from the company and kind of giving the company into a trust where he stated that the earth was his only shareholder. That's brave. I thought so. Now- He's still a rich man. Yeah. He's still a very rich man who has lived an amazingly wonderful life. There's not a lot of – maybe he loses his legacy if it tanks, it doesn't work. But there's not a ton of personal risk Mm -hmm. where he's going to lose it all. Mm -hmm. So it's not – it's an e- it's an easy decision to make in one way, but in an ego way, it's really, really difficult because who doesn't want to stockpile more cash and put their, <laughs> donate it to a hospital and put their name on a hospital and do all those sorts of things. So on one level, it, it's, it's easy now because of how brave he was earlier in the life of that business. Yeah. And when we look at, I think that's an interesting thing to look at. You know, we often hold leaders up and point how how amazing they are, how brave they are, how how intelligent they are, be it Steve Jobs or be it, you know, Satya Nadella or or whoever. And I'm always curious, like, I want to go back in time to when they were 23. Mm. Let's look at how brave they were then. What were the moves they made then, which really put them on uh uh on a path to be able to be in a position to take really brave decisions? But who were they at 23 that's the person I want to know anyhow so I think there's bravery from a purpose standpoint and Patagonia certainly certainly living that I think there's bravery down to such tiny little things of looking for tiny little victories yeah of you know I one of the stands out for me in the again in the FI space if you look at what wealth simple did when wealth simple simply started talking about money in an honest way when wealth simple kind of said, you know what, like This money is not easy and money is not great and we're all stressed about money. Everybody else who was talking about money, everybody else who was talking about retirement plans, it was always like people you know, that looked like you and I, Marilyn, with a surfboard on a beach mm. and going, this is retirement. It didn't show people going, you know what, the pandemic just hit. I just lost all my speaking revenue. What the hell am I going to do now? You know, had nobody talking about money, had nobody talking about how they were raised with money. Those those were brave conversations. Yeah. And the model, it's robo-advisors, whatever, that's not so brave, but simply talking about the product in a really, really unique way. If you look at um, um, what Dos did, and you know, our Havas was behind that, Havas New York, not Havas Toronto, but Havas New York. And they simply went out and said, you know what? There's a segment of men out there that they don't want to be the the jock. They don't want to be the dude on the dock. They don't want to be that. In fact, the thing that keeps them up at night is that a woman in a bar won't find them interesting. Mm. That was the insight behind that whole campaign. But there was a whole group of men who said, I just don't want to be seen as boring. That's it. And so just looking at that problem. So, I mean, there's countless of examples of, of brands like that that are kind of doing interesting things. But I, I think we have to stop expecting brands to do the big, massive things because then that's way more pressure. And it's actually those tiny little victories of choosing to not speak in a, in with auto-tune, to, to choose to not refer to the problem in the same old way who choose to bypass the template and do something original, but such tiny little things on a daily basis. I think those are like, those are biggest victories. One of my biggest moments in my career was getting an opportunity to interview Jack Welch on stage in front of like 2000 people. And, you know, he was voted CEO of the century. This guy is the kind of the King of the shareholder value era. And, um, and I wanted to hate him because <laughs> I thought I did. But I, you know, I but was you like, didn't. opened it up. But I but I didn't. I interviewed him in a really responsible way. And um, an interesting story. So an interesting story with that. We, I said to the organizers, I'd le- want to have a talk. I want to have a conversation with him because I'm not a journalist. So you're paying him all, you shitload of money to come and speak and be interviewed. Why don't I just set him up? What does he want to be? What does he want to talk about? I'll just ask him the questions. Instead of, I don't care. I'm not a journalist. And so let's just chat. So he nothing happens. We exchange numbers or he gives whatever. I hear nothing. The day before the event, I'm in our boardroom with a client. Someone comes in and goes, you have a phone call. I go, I'm with Vikram. I, like, take a message and you know, I'll come back. They're like, it's Jack Welch. <laughs> and Vikram just looks at me and goes, you should take that call. <laughs> you know, so, so anyhow, I get on stage and he's he was a, a lovely guy. I know that the, there he has, certainly has his critics, especially now. But for that conversation, he was a lovely guy, treated me with the utmost respect. But when I said to him, what's innovation? He said, there's too many people who make it a quarterly – you know, it's the quarterly theme. It's innovate for tomorrow. It's, you know, like all that kind of stuff. And he said, innovation to me is find a better way every day. That every single day you get up, you just go for this incremental improvement. You're just trying to make, what? how am I going to make it better today? That to me is real
0: bravery. Yeah. And that's brilliant advice. It can just be a small change that you make and another small change and another small change. I think humor requires some bravery, Ron, from the standpoint of brands being funny out there in the world and making us laugh. I think that takes bravery because you never know how it's going to land. But then in your stand-up years, that took a lot of bravery. I have the utmost respect for comedians as I've seen them perform live. Is humor bravery, like brands and stand-up guys?
1: Yeah, it is it, and what I think what I think humor is is the like let's say you look at this pen mm-hmm. and you see this pen you only see this pen from one direction one perspective you it's a pen it's a pen it's a pen it's a pen and or if you go into you know I mean you know this better than anybody you go into an organization and you say this is creativity and people are like man they fold their arms like I don't know I've been in this business 20 years yeah. And you're like, ah, you only see that one way. Okay, got it. So when you go, okay, we're going to look at this problem from one perspective. What humor does is humor goes, give me a moment, but I'm going to show it to you from this perspective, the humorous perspective. It's just another perspective on the thing we've all seen. It's a different view. And when they laugh, you go, aha, I got you. Yeah. You've just proved to yourself that you can see the thing you've only had one perspective on this until your entire time. You proved to yourself that you had the ability to see it from another angle. Now that you've seen it from another angle, I'm going to come at it from an even a third angle. And this is the strategic angle, the important angle, the, the angle that's going to resonate, the angle that's really going to impact your business. You've already proven it. So now you're open you've opened them up to being open to seeing it from a different angle, the braver I think comes from when you're a stand-up is because of the metric. The metric is the laugh, right? That's the that's how you're, you get whether it. You or know the success and fail exactly. And so if you go, oh, here's the thing, and I see it from this angle, I wonder if other people see it from that angle. And if they don't, and the laughter falls flat, it's like it's pass fail. It's like did There's not no did gray not work. Area I here. failed at my job. No gray area, and there are no excuses. There's no like, yeah. Well, I called and left the voicemail, and they haven't called me back yet. Like, there is, there are no excuses. Either they laughed or they didn't. And so that is, to me, in one hand, it, yeah, it's really, really brave for putting yourself in the line. On the other hand, it's not brave at all because it, it is all within your me. It is one hundred percent with you that you control every single part of that. And so if they didn't laugh, then you have the ability to tack on something, which maybe will make them laugh. Or you have the ability to go that air conditioners make a noise is going to impact the joke, turn it off. Or you have the ability to wander into the audience and connect with someone. So it's completely within your control. Everything is completely within your control. And there are very few careers that have that freedom. Yeah.
0: First stand up gig you ever did, you produced yourself and it was 45 minutes long. Am I right?
1: oh, you've done your research. I have done my research, <laughs> Mr. Ron. Well, suddenly I'm with Brian Linehan here. It's like, <laughs> uh, yes.
0: Um, I don't know how it went. How did it go?
1: It remains as one of my all-time favorite nights of performance. Of all time. Oh,
0: God, tell me why.
1: For a couple of reasons. Um, One, a little bit of backstory. I wanted to do stand-up. I went to a friend and said, how do you, I want, I want to get into it. How do I do this? He's like, you go to an open mic night at Yuck Yuck's. And you sign up and they you get five minutes and then you go up, you do it. And then you keep going back every Monday night. You just keep going five minutes, five minutes, five minutes. When that five minutes becomes good enough, they'll invite you to a Tuesday night. and You can do seven. Ooh. And, you know, blah, 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 blah. So I go, okay, I'm just going to go check it out. I'm not going to commit. I'm just going to check it out, get the lay of the land. I went down and it was a shit show. I was like, I'm not, this is good. That guy's drunk. That guy lost a bet. Like, this is all right. You know, no, I'm not doing this. This is a horrible comedy. So I just went back to him. And I said, Steve Patterson, who now hosts a show called The Debaters, brilliant comedian. And I said, I, No, I'm not. I'm not doing that. What else can I do? And he said, Well, you can. You can get to know a producer who's producing a live show and convince them to put you on the show, even though you've never done it before. Maybe they'll give you five minutes. And then I just said, Why don't I just become a producer? I'll do it myself and put myself on the yeah. show. So I'll produce a show. So my very first show, I produced it and made myself the headliner. Excellent. And gave myself a 45-minute headlining <laughs> slot. So um, so that was brave because that was completely disrupting the business model of how one becomes a stand-up comedian. Yeah. And I, yeah, I was just went entrepreneurial with it and said, I'll just do it on my own. Um. So one is like, oh, the model – the business model worked, even though the, you know, we donated the money to charity, mm-hmm. it wasn't a money thing, but we donated the money to charity, but the model worked. So like, okay, so we sold it out. I, it was a 120 people or something at the Tim Sims playhouse at the second city, a lot of friends and family. Um, a couple of the reasons why I think it was to this day remains really, really special to me. One, um, you never as a, or rarely as a speaker, Never as a comedian do you launch forty-five minutes of new material for the first time. You never, never do that. You're always work on the new two, the new two, the new two, and maybe by the end of the year you got a new show or you got a new speech. But you're always rolling over two minutes so that you, you know, you can innovate. And so to 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 put up forty-five minutes of brand new material that have never heard the response of an audience, then that is really powerful as a performer to be able to do that. So that was cool. Um. The material was really about growing up poor and and it's, it was kind of a, you know, reflective thing on my life. And, you know, you start by writing what you know. And so that was the first time that I'd ever explored that angle on my life comedically, almost like a therapeutically. And then the last part was that my mom was there. And um, my mom was a, an incredible human being who, you know, raised... Uh, she raised four kids on social assistance, disabled. She was an incredible human being. And the whole thing was, was uh really an homage to her because it was about kind of poking fun at our at our lives. And I was I was able to, to eventually take that and put it into play form. And when you take stand-up and you put it into play form, you expose the emotional underbelly of, of what it is. But For my mom to come, I thought it was really special because what she did, um, you know, was just incredible. Um, And I love that she got to see it. I just really love that she got to see it. She never got to meet my kids. She never got to meet my wife. And she never got to see me in this life, you know, like in my advertising life, Mm -hmm. in my speaking life kind of thing. She never got to see that but she got to see a glimpse of it by seeing that standup. And um, it means a lot to me that she got to see that.
0: Bless her heart. I bet she laughed. You know, she sees herself in that comedic portrayal of you guys growing up and her yeah. balancing 4,000 balls in the air on social assistance. I would think that she would have been the biggest laugh in the audience.
1: Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. I'll, I'll never forget. There was um, a really cool. Uh, there, there was a, it's a there was a very funny bit where I talked about being born in. I was born in 1970, and that at that time, mothers like mothers now are like so protective of what they put on their bodies, and but back then it was like they was just they didn't know what they know now, and so moms like there was nothing remarkable was smoking, you know, and uh, my mom never smoked. She very rarely drank. But I portrayed it as like, oh, my mom, you know, was like now they they don't put caffeine in their body. But moms back then they were like, you know, uh, hey, everybody here, hold my cigarette um, <laughs> and I've got a drink. And then it but it escalated, you know, the rule of comedy. You got to escalate it. So I went from the smoking to the drinking to the smoking a joint to doing cocaine to strapping <laughs> into hitting your arm <laughs> to do heroin. And the and that the the effect that had on the fetus coming down to the tune of Paul Simon's slip sliding away as you come through <laughs> and are born. Um and my you know, I could hear my mom laughing in the audience, and at the end I said, What did you think? And she said, Well, you didn't tell me that you were gonna tell people I was a heroin junkie. <laughs> you know, you know. Um <laughs> and so she she got it. Like she got. The totally. joke of, of of everything.
0: Thank you for sharing that story. Oh, thank you. I'm
1: sorry that I started crying on your podcast. Don't you own. ever
0: apologize for that? That's a beautiful moment. You have written a few books, Ron. Mm-hmm. The one that I think I snapped a picture of in Atlanta. New York City, I think it was Atlanta Airport. As me, on airplanes, I love to read and everyone else may be looking at things on their little in-flight screen, but it's my little special time to open a book. And I know you love to read. So I'm in the bookstore hoping I'm going to find an associate in the store who knows their way around the books. And there you are. There it is, the beautiful bright colors of think, do, say. Can we talk about that book? First of all, I know, but the audience doesn't know. What is think, do, say? What is it? Why'd you write it? What's it about?
1: I wrote it because I felt that there were a lot of people, a lot of leaders, a lot of marketers that were trying to game the system to get ahead. That, well, they were either talking about the great purpose that they had or that they wanted to have. And, but the reality was they, they didn't actually have it or um, they were, you know, talking about the things that they were going to do, but they never actually did them or that they were just kind of focused on the do, 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 do side. They weren't strategically, they weren't focused and there were all these kind of competing things. And I thought that, um, that business got unnecessarily complicated. That if you go into any organization now, you go, what does this place stand for? And they go... Well, our north star is this and it's linked to our brand purpose which is this, which is related but we have a mission statement and we have a vision statement and we have our bhag and we have you know and we've got our pyramid and we got our and I go and 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 then now in my experience in dealing with frontline employees they were just like they could recite some of the stuff because it had been beat into their heads in onboarding But the reality was it it wasn't improving business. None of that stuff was improving business. And it wasn't allowing, it wasn't making people really fulfilled and, and happy. And we saw that in marketing specifically, that the actions of organizations were the best marketing vehicle. And that customer experience was way more powerful than any ad. And so it was all those kind of things coming together, and it was really out of frustration. I was a, I was a guest on a television show that your global audiences may not know, but it was at that point, it was called uh, The Goods. It was on CBC television, and it was a daytime talk show with five great hosts. And I was on talking about personal branding and branding And I kept on trying to bring in all these really fancy terms and stuff. And the producer said, look, these people aren't marketers. You need to simplify this. And out of frustration, I said, look, great marketing is really just aligning what you think and what you do and what you say. And that's it. And that was the like, ping, oh, maybe that's the thing.
0: There it is.
1: And at first I thought it was too simple. And then I worked with Michael Port and Amy Port on the speech first. And it was like, oh, that is the thing. And the simplicity, the simplicity of the framework allowed the inputs to be really complex, but the simplicity of the framework was the part that I think really um, delivered it home. So it really is, how does one align what they think, what they do, and what they say to kind of build trust and, and, and win the battle for time?
0: It's beautiful. Great people and great organizations succeed in this busy, busy world based on what they think, what they do, and what they say. And when I go to clients and talk about storytelling, it's like doing things in threes. Anybody can keep those three things in their head, so the simplification is a beautiful thing. And most times, yeah, if you want to understand the vision of a company, you have to go and look at some stupid little plaque they've got nailed up beside the elevator so that they can read it to you. But nobody could wake them up at three o'clock in the morning and ask them to say what is their vision statement, but think, do, say... I would remember at three o'clock in the morning. So fantastic.
1: Yeah. It's the, you know, like I should never read your values. I should experience your values. That's where I, and so, um, but we do need to articulate them. We need to articulate them. They need to ladder up to some sort of sense of purpose. We need something to hang on to. And so I go, okay, this is what we fundamentally believe, you know, because we could all say, well, you know, Hey, we believe that people should all get free cars. Like, well, not a great business model behind that (laughs) sense of purpose. Um, so we do need to believe in something and then knowing that that's it's irrelevant if we don't align our actions to it because that's where the power comes in. And then if we have those actions and we take those actions and they're all laddering up to this, this belief, um, that's worth talking about. Absolutely. But if we're going to talk about them, then let's all agree that we should talk about them in a way that understands that our ideas are adopted and our passions are adopted depending on how we communicate them. Yeah. So why don't we just say it in an interesting way? Why don't we say it in an honest way? Why don't we say it in an authentic way? Because that gets more people on side. Mm-hmm.
0: Amazing. So, so Ron, you have two, if I'm allowed to talk about these two, beautiful little boys. Of course, yeah. You talked about becoming a father. As a,
1: as a 52-year-old male, I have a two-year-old and a
0: 4 <laughs> I was about to be gentler with it. You talked to me about becoming a dad a little older than maybe what you thought, but these two beautiful boys, how are you teaching them? I guess we'll go to this great big word called bravery. Are you teaching them bravery or how do you see this rolling out as dad and the kids?
1: Yeah, it's, um, it's a really interesting dynamic, especially just given how old I am, you know, I'm 52, um, and so I have a life of experience that most dads who have 2-year-olds and 4-year-olds they they just don't they just don't have. I also have the experience of having having had a shitty dad, you know. So um I I um have the ability to not only kind of go towards what I think is right but also be running away from the stuff that I thought was wrong. Mm-hmm. And so that's you know I'm really I'm re- in a weird way I'm really grateful for having that perspective yeah. on stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, I hit the Max is the four year old. And at one point I, you know, one of the things like I did not have a really great relationship with my dad. And I, I I, like, I kissed my kids like 400 times a day. Like (coughs) like, I'm just always like (coughs) cheek, cheek, forehead, you know, like just (coughs) and Max said, why do you kiss us so much? And I said, um, well, because daddy didn't, I didn't. I didn't get a kiss from my, I never kissed my father. Yeah. I never got a kiss from from my daddy. Yeah. And then nothing. And three days later, we're in the car at a stoplight and it's silent in the car. And he just goes,
0: why didn't your daddy ever kiss you?
1: Wow. It was just this, we've been sitting on it for it's three It's been
0: percolating. Days,
1: you know? Yeah. And then I, my <laughs> wife looks at me like, no, you're going you know, to explain that one. And so I just kind of said, oh, you know what, like in those times, daddies didn't you know, they didn't show love the way daddy show love now. And my daddy was away a lot. And, you know, so I didn't, I didn't want to get into like divorce and like all that. I just, but I just said daddy, my daddy was away a lot and he, you know, we didn't get lucky. So I just want to make sure, you know, I love you. But, you know, bravery for them, I think is, to teach bravery for them, I think it's also bravery for a dad. Like you, you're raised, to say that you're supposed to be, like dads have this stereotype of like, you're the fun one and you're the irresponsible one and you're, you know, you're the reckless one and all that kind of stuff. And then you just kind of reinforce these age old male stereotypes that I've never signed up for. And, and so you, it, it is kind of a little bit brave to go like, I'm going to teach you how to respect women, you know, because that's not typically something that dads taught their sons, certainly in the 70s. And I want that evolution for you to be a little bit more natural and organic than for those of us who grew up in the 70s. But I think it's whether it's being brave for those bigger picture things or whether it's trying something new, I think it's making sure that they understand that there is a place for them to come to when they're feeling the ramifications of, of, you know, either they're nervous or they're afraid or they're afraid of outcomes or they're hurt because of an outcome. They can always come to me. Always, always, always. My wife and I can always come to us. So they they understand that bedrock of support. They understand the support of them to encourage them and inspire them to go. Like, I'm, I'm your biggest cheerleader. I, I see you standing on the edge of the diving board. Like, I'm going to be there cheering for you, cheering for you, cheering for you. Um, I'm also going to try and be empathetic to, like, what you're experiencing and what you're feeling and helping you through that. Like, I know what you're experiencing right now. And you're feeling really nervous right now. And here's maybe, a, you know, a way that you can get around that emotion. And um, so those sorts of things, I think, is just, yeah. Um, I certainly don't have a playbook, but try and provide all those avenues of support for them.
0: We talk about not having that model for you as, as a father present in your life when you were younger. But you are certainly modeling it for your for your own boys in your own family. It's it's fabulous.
1: Well, thanks. I think there's like a, a bunch of people who I wrote a piece about this once of just like people having to live up to their job title. And like my dad didn't live up didn't live up to the title of dad. My stepdad didn't live up to the title of dad. But there are a whole bunch of other people who didn't live up to the ti- their title but they step they went beyond their title mm-hmm. of camp director, brother, friend, you know, teacher who likes were like I'm going to step outside my job title to provide some fatherly advice or guidance to you. Yeah. And it's because of those people who provided examples to me um that I was able to explore that.
0: Fantastic. What's next for you, Ron? What what I mean, I know none of us have a crystal ball obviously, but in terms of your speaking career, your agency, there's, is there, is there something on the horizon that you would like to chat about? Are you writing another book? Are you just,
1: yeah? what's going on? Well, I'm kind of working on the next, I'm working on the next book, but then without a, you know, it's just like gathering mm-hmm. content and info and, and stuff like that, crystallizing all that. I have a very long process for that kind of stuff. And then when it actually comes down to writing the book, I take, it's like six months and then I'm just, I'm full on and then it's it's done kind of thing. But um, I think that there are, uh, the agency, um, there are, uh, now that I'm kind of back to the road that I'm morphing into like a different role again, you know, and so we've promoted somebody into the creative director role. So there's kind of that, changing that kind of thing. Um, But it's always just kind of like, what's the, it's the better every day. Like what's, the, what's next for the agency and what's the next way to look at a problem? What's the next project and that kind of thing. And then speaking wise, it's, yeah, it's kind of constantly what's the next new two. And then at the end of the year, I'm like, oh, there's a whole new speech. Yeah. Cause I invested in new twos every time.
0: I I have to um, throw you a compliment on and I hate this word pivot, but the fact that because there's a few words we just should never have to use again in our life and pivot (laughs) is one of them. Um, But I, I watched you doing a delivery online of speaking to an audience that was invited just Ron speaking. And you had basically created the next two, the next two, the next two, all about what's going on with the pandemic and talking about a race car and how you accelerate through the corners. And it seemed like that happened pretty quickly in that the world was still walking around looking for the door in a dark room in the middle of this global pandemic, but you had figured it out in terms of how to go online, how to deliver content in a speaking form that was really engaging. And it wasn't stuff I'd ever heard you talk about before. It was stuff that was really, really needed, something that needed to be heard by the big world who was rocking in a ball about the fact that what the hell's going to happen to us.
1: Well, thank you. There, there, uh, it's funny how like, you know, the world shut down. I got a newborn at home. I got to figure out like all this kind of stuff. And, I knew that everybody was rushing to tech, 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 like figuring out the tools, the tools, the tools. And I went, "Mm, I'll figure that out. I need to figure out content because I got a whack of stuff that's based on airlines and hotels. Yeah. And I'm not going to be the guy to just bring back the stuff that I have been taught. It's just not relevant right now. And so that's where I rushed to right away was the, oh, this is what it is and figure out like what should people – And that started with talking to executives, like, what are your concerns? And so just, like, going through, like, what should I – what is my perspective on this? What should people do? And then uh, from a tech standpoint, I stayed up one night, and I – for the first time since university, I pulled an all-nighter where I learned Ecamm, which is what I'm connected to here, you know, this whole kind of thing. And, um, you know, so I, like – started looking at how can I deliver slides in a way that's not where I have to go full screen slide and I lose the eye contact and like so I worked through the mechanics of all that and and I just but I just stayed up
0: probably easy to do when you had a newborn cuz hey yeah totally, the rest yeah, of the house yeah. was up exactly. anyway right
1: <laughs> yeah and then and then I did it and then um and then I just continued to then like okay I had a base of content of which to add on to through as things changed and whatnot. But yeah, it was, it was, it's pretty tough to walk away from those gold bits. Yeah. You know, where you're like, I don't, the race car thing was like, I don't know, is this going to work? I think it's interesting, but.
0: It did, it worked really well. And you really understood, understand, obviously you always have the audience in that. No, talking about airlines and hotels when everybody can't leave their house is, hello. It just looks like canned, regurgitated crap that nobody wants to hear about. So congratulations. So Ron, before we let you go, uh, if people want to get in touch with you, they want to follow you, they want to buy your beautiful Think Do Say book, how do they do this? This is the Ron self-promotion part.
1: Oh, well, I live at... No, Um, (laughs) you drop by for coffee. You know, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. And so if you want to kind of see more stuff, hear more stuff, I just... Pop a lot of stuff there. Um, if you want promotional stuff, you can go to rontite.com or you can go to churchstate.com for the agency. But yeah, LinkedIn is kind of the place that I kind of hang out and exchange thoughts with folks.
0: It's great what you write on there. I, it, it's fabulous. I've, I've met so many wonderful people oh, based on people commenting on the stuff that you post. It's like, hey, I think I like what this person has to say. I'm going to connect with them. And if they want you to come and speak to their... 10 million person organization all about life, how would they get in touch with you to be a speaker?
1: Uh, you can just email me and I'll put you in touch with the Bureau, but it's ron at churchstate.com. Beautiful. Happy to um, to to do that. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ron. It's been incredible. I feel like we could just, Talk and talk and talk.
1: Cried and cried and cried. Oh, all of the
0: emotions. Absolutely, on yeah. a Friday afternoon. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for being so brave in all the things that you're doing with your life. And um, it's been an absolute delight for me to chat with you.
1: Thanks, Marilyn. And thanks for listening, everybody.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at Marilyn That's it for today. See you next time.